But today, we are in uh, Romans beginning chapter 2. And I noticed as I was uh, typing up my, uh, finishing typing up my outline this morning that this is lesson 9, which means it took us only 8 lessons to get through chapter 1. <laughs> so at that rate, uh, how many lessons uh, is Romans? Uh, <laughs> About 120, almost as much as Genesis, which was 50 chapters long. <laughs> so we'll see. At any rate, we may be able to speed up, but that's not the goal. Uh, the goal is to understand the book. So we are in Romans chapter two, and it's and we kind of come to a, a a shift or a little bit of a change in Paul's uh, argument or what the point that Paul is making here, and. Uh, so before we read the verses we're going to look at today, which will be hopefully verses 1 through 8 or uh, 1 through 6 or 7, uh, let's go back and look at those the last uh, verses we looked at last week. We looked at verses 28 through 32. And the week before that, we, uh, we looked uh, from about uh, 24 down through 20 or 22 or so down through 27. Uh, so just kind of look back at those verses in chapter 1. Think back about the things that we talked about last week. And what are some of the things that you recall that we talked about in the last week or two? It is a frightening concept, and and uh, clearly Paul here is talking about unbelievers. But but I think this is true also in the in the life of believers uh, uh, that when we just persist in sin, I think sometimes God just kind of lets us go a little bit, gives us a little bit of leash, uh, so that we'll learn what this stuff leads to, and. Uh, so, uh, and I had the quote written down. I don't know where it's from. Uh, uh, I don't know where it's from, and I don't know if I can quote it exactly, but I had it written down to share last week, and you've heard it before, but, uh, <clears throat> but I don't think I got around to it uh, last week. But there's the, the, the quote that someone has said that sin takes you further than you want to go and keeps you longer than you want to stay and costs more then you want to pay, and I and I think that's just kind of a uh, kind of a summary of Romans chapter one. <laughs> that's I think what God is trying to teach us in Romans chapter one. What else? I like how the talk about the exchanges are made mm-hmm. in the ultimate exchange where God exchanges His Son yeah. to deliver us, and how even though we go through. Um, 
good news, the barriers are removed as stated earlier, and you just step into a depraved mind, if you will. But God has such mercy that that doesn't mean that you're unsettled. Yes. Any mind, you can come. Yeah. And that's Paul's whole Paul Paul's whole point. He starts right off saying the gospel is powerful for salvation to everyone who believes, and then he paints this picture of somebody who is just absolutely, you know, we would think beyond hope. But Paul's point is they're not beyond hope. My gospel is powerful enough to save people like this, and that's why I don't have any hesitation to come to Rome and preach it, because even though I'm going to be preaching to people like this, I know the gospel can save them. You know, and the specific application I thought of that this week, of course, came to my mind as I was thinking about uh, the situation there in Aurora, Colorado, and and uh, and this man who did this horrific. Uh, despicable uh, deed and brought such misery uh, and grief into the lives of so many people in an entire city and even an entire nation. And as I thought about that, I thought, Paul says the gospel of Jesus Christ is sufficiently powerful to save that man. And, uh, and that's the lesson that Paul's trying to teach us here. Uh, what else? Let's see if we can get a little bit of review here. We talked about three exchanges that man makes and three responses that God makes to those exchanges. What are the three exchanges there in chapter 1 that man makes? What's the first exchange? Okay, he exchanges the glory of the incorruptible God for an image made in the likeness of man or birds or four-footed animals or crawling creatures. So he takes the glory of the incorruptible and he sets that aside and in its place he sets up the image of that which is corruptible. Okay? And what was God's response? to that first exchange. Okay, he gave them over to the to the desires of their heart for impurity. Okay. So it was kind of the first step towards moral degradation and he, and particularly I think sexual degradation here is that God releases some of the restraints and lets them move in that direction. Okay, and so they moved in that direction, and in doing so, they made their second exchange, which was what? Okay, they exchanged the truth of God and the truth about God for a lie or for the lie. And, uh, and that is apparently, it seems, a reference to the idea of setting up in the place of God and in the place of the truth of God other truths, other alternate truths ideas and thoughts uh, and even alternate gods. Okay, so they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and what was God's response to that? What was the wrath that he showed for that? Excuse me? Okay, he gave them over to degrading passions and specifically what is Paul referring to there? Homosexuality. So, so here we have the onset 
of homosexual sin and, hom and the carrying out of homosexual lust and passion. Okay, And so man then indulged in that and makes his third exchange, which is what? Okay, that's the response. What's the exchange? The, the, the woman exchanged the natural function. So God's response to the previous exchange was that he removes the restraint and man then makes man and woman makes the third exchange, which is the exchange of the natural function. Okay. Now, as I was thinking about this yesterday, the reason this is so significant is when when man exchanges the natural function, and the thing that's so serious about homosexuality is, is it goes to the essence of creation. That that man has a all men have a knowledge of God. We know that all men have a knowledge of God. Why? Because it's because it says so. But 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 where do they get this knowledge? From from, from God specifically in creation. Yeah, they all get every man gets some knowledge of God from creation. That was the argument earlier in the chapter. Now we find that in suppressing that knowledge, they've moved to a point where in homosexual sin specifically or particularly the creation is being distorted. And when you distort the creation, you no longer see the revelation of God, right? So that's why this is so important. That's why this issue of homosexuality is so important because it goes to the core of what God created. And when we, when we actually exchange then the natural function for the unnatural, we're, we're distorting our our ability to see and perceive that there is a God and what He's like, His divine power, His His eternal power and His divine attributes, as He says earlier in the chapter. That that is obscured because we have now exchanged the natural function for the unnatural. So He makes that third exchange: the natural function for the unnatural, and God's response to that is what He gives them over to a depraved mind. So exchanging the natural function distorts our ability to see God in creation. And so now we have a broken or an unfit mind. And the significance of the way Paul words it there in that verse is he says, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, so man's kind of just saying, well, you know, it's just not appropriate or it's just, you know, it's, it's just not fitting to acknowledge God. I don't need to do that or I don't want to do that and it's not appropriate. Paul, using in the Greek there, when he says he has given them over to a depraved mind, the Greek there is a word that's closely connected to the idea of, of them not seeing fit to acknowledge God. So it's kind of a word play that Paul uses. They didn't see fit to acknowledge God, so God has given them over to an unfit mind. And the point we talked about last week is just simply that our minds are broken. They don't work the way they're supposed to. Our minds are remarkable things and they do remarkable things and they're capable of remarkable things. The human mind is a marvelous thing and we see evidences of it all around us. But ultimately, and particularly in the moral area and in the area related to God, our minds are broken. I, I was reading a guest editorial in the newspaper yesterday 
I don't know what's wrong with these people up in Enid, but their minds must be broken because there was an, there was an editorial, a guest editorial from the Enid paper in the Norman paper yesterday about the appointment of West Lane to the uh, position of DHS uh, director or whatever, you know. And, and I, not that I was particularly invested in that appointment or anything, but what struck me was they went through all of the things that West Lane has done, you know, his career. And they mentioned in the editorial, they mentioned all the different things, positions he served in, and things he'd done. And it got down to the end of the list and it said, and he is also a man of faith. We hope that his moral compass does not cloud his judgment in carrying out the procedures and policies, etc., etc. And I went, what? <laughs> you hope his moral compass doesn't cloud his judgment? <laughs> and I'm going... I'm going, what is wrong? Our minds are broken, folks. Our minds are broken when we think somehow that there's something wrong with our moral compass affecting the decisions that we make in the jobs that we do. I'm sure that the writer of that editorial, if I were going to go and paint for him, would not say, well, Rick, I hope your moral compass won't cloud your judgment in painting my house. But obviously his mind is broken. But let's don't be too hard on him. Our minds are broken too, right? They just don't work the way they're supposed to. Well, so then Paul reaches the end and he gives this long list, 21 things. And as I mentioned last week, it's not an exhaustive list. We can think of sins uh, that, uh, that are listed other places in Scripture that Paul doesn't list here. But he lists this horrific list of 21 sins, including murder and strife and, and hating God and and uh, slander and gossip and, and uh, just all kinds of things that he lists there at the end of the chapter. And he says that because of their depraved minds, they fall into and they do all this stuff. And he says not only do they do these things, but they know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. The ordinance of God says that the just punishment for these things is death. And not only do they do them knowing that the just punishment for them is death, but they give hearty approval to those who practice such things. So it's a pretty bleak picture that Paul gives us of the condition of mankind by the time we get to the end of chapter 1. Then we pick up in chapter 2, which is where we are today. And he says, yeah. Um, I the last week, sorry. So I, I didn't know <coughs> talk about the three exchanges and the God makes a connection in the type of sin typically in the result of yes. the effect of yeah. yeah. And there's a connection here too and then there's a progression between the three. And I didn't know yeah. if you would kind of talk about that. We that we, a couple of weeks ago we talked a little bit about the progression mm-hmm. uh, uh we didn't talk a lot about the first point that you mentioned. Uh, let's pick it up in chapter 2 in verse 1 where he says, Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who, ju- who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? 
Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to every man according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. Okay? Well, um, just uh, kind of as a lead in here, a couple couple points that we need to think about uh, as Paul kind of shifts gears here a little bit. In chapter 1, he starts out in verse 18 about the wrath of God being revealed against man, uh, uh, against heaven, against all ungodliness and righteousness and the man who suppressed the truth and the righteousness, etc., etc., etc. And he kind of pictures a, paints a picture of mankind in general. Okay? But as I've alluded to in previous lessons, it, at now he's going to start kind of narrowing things down. Because inevitably, as we read chapter 1 and we read this description in chapter 1, almost automatically we begin to say, now, wait a minute, Paul. I'm not like that. And I know a lot of people who aren't like this. They're not this bad. You know, I mean, sure, I make mistakes and I maybe even sin a little bit, but I'm not like this. And actually, I think these things are despicable. I mean, which one of us on uh, Friday morning did not immediately pass judgment? on James Holmes. Yeah, we just immediately pass judgment on it. Yeah. So, we're not really all of us like this. Okay? So, Paul now begins to deal with the rest of us. And when I say the rest of us, I'm not suggesting that we aren't all like this because he's going to make the point in one way or another we are. But for those of us who think we're not like that, Paul's going to begin to narrow things down. Now, uh, he says at the beginning of the very first word, he says, therefore. And immediately our minds go, well, what is the therefore a reference to here? What, you know, what is the connection in Paul's logic? And there are two or three possible explanations. And one is that his therefore here is connected to this list that has just gone before. He's just given this list of sins that men have entered into because of their depraved mind. And, and therefore, because everybody's done all of this, everybody's guilty, okay? Uh, so, uh, it could be that, or it could be a reference clear back to uh, verse 20, where he talks about everybody being without an excuse because they've had the knowledge of God and God has given this knowledge and they are all without excuse. And therefore, since everybody's without excuse, you people that I'm going to talk about here in these next few verses are also without excuse. Okay. So, those are a couple possible explanations. Uh, for the word therefore at the beginning of the chapter. Another possible explanation is it's just a res- he's just following in the logic of the whole of his argument. So in other words, one, one explanation for the use of the word therefore puts the emphasis on the last few verses preceding verse 1 of chapter 2. One emphasis puts, uh, or one understanding puts the emphasis on the early part of that passage back in 18 through 20. 
Or the third alternative would be to see that Paul is just giving a general description of mankind here and then this condition of mankind that he is in is because he had a knowledge of God and he has done something with this knowledge that isn't appropriate. He has suppressed this knowledge and, and, and this, this, this has been the outcome, this degradation, this progression that Jim was just referring to uh, uh, has been the outcome and therefore all of us are, are, this next group of people are also without excuse. I don't think it really matters. You can, you can view it either way you want uh, and I think you kind of get to the same place. Okay, so uh, if that word is kind of a hang up to you, that's, uh, that's my answer to that issue. Uh, Paul launches into a diatribe here. Okay, what's a diatribe? Well, in common usage, when we think of a diatribe, we just think of somebody just ranting on about something, right? And they're just kind of going on and on and on and just ragging on somebody, right? Okay. Well, when we talk about a diatribe in literature or in rhetoric, we're actually using the term in a technical sense. And it means something different than that, okay? A diatribe in a rhetorical or a literary sense, and we'll encounter several of them in the book of Romans, a diatribe is a situation where the writer or the speaker kind of engages in this imaginary conversation with an imaginary person over here. Okay, so you're, you're kind of entering into either a debate or a discussion with this imaginary person. And it's a way of illustrating or communicating different ways of looking at the same question. And, and, and then giving what you perceive to be the right answer. Okay. So, for example, if I, if I wanted to give you a diatribe on politics, I might put somebody over here, just an imaginary person over here, and he keeps raising these political points that I disagree with, and I would be refuting his points. And you would be seeing both sides of the argument. Okay. And so, Paul is using here a, this literary device called a diatribe. So, when he says you in verse 2. He, it's not that he has somebody specific in the church of Rome that he's thinking about. It's not that there are people in the Roman church who think this way and he's trying to refute them. But he's rather using this literary technique to make his argument, his final conclusive argument that he's going to make when we get into the middle of chapter 20, which is that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's where he's headed. And he is just using this literary technique here of diatribe to communicate these ideas. Okay? Now, we have to remember that at this point in Paul's life, he is, a, he is an experienced debater. Right? Here's a guy who has been now for many years traveling all over the Roman world preaching the gospel. And he's encountered all kinds of people. He's encountered, of course, initially Jews and everywhere he goes, the first place he goes when he goes to a city is he goes into the Jewish synagogue and he preaches the gospel in the Jewish synagogue until they kick him out and then he goes to the Gentiles and he follows this pattern repeatedly. And then he goes to the Gentiles and when he goes to the Gentiles, he, you know, he goes, he goes everywhere. He talks, to, you know, he talks to the people on the street. When he gets to Athens, he goes to Mars Hill. I've had the opportunity to 
to climb the steps up there to the top of Mars Hill and stand there on Mars Hill that overlooks the city of Athens and, and to think about Paul standing there in uh, Romans uh, chapter or Acts chapter 17, I believe it is, where he has this dialogue with these uh, elite philosophers in the city of Athens. So this is Paul's experience. So he's widely experienced in debating and discussing his gospel with all kinds of people. So it's only natural then when he is presenting his arguments or his points to people as he does here in the book of Romans that he recalls and he remembers all these different arguments that people bring up against the thing he says. And, and he knows that there are people out in his audience that have either heard these arguments or hold to these arguments himself. And so it's only natural then that he would just kind of bring those arguments up. He knows they're going to come to people's mind. You know, I do the same thing here when I'm teaching. You know, as I'm, as I'm explaining a passage and I come across somewhere, I know there's several different views and I think, well, the people sitting here in the class are wondering, is it this or is it this? You know, I, I just anticipate that. So I bring those arguments up. I bring those issues up and suggest them as possible answers. And then I knock them down if I want to, right? That's my privilege as the teacher. Well, that's what Paul is doing, okay? He's, he's bringing up these various arguments and then he's answering them. So that's what Paul is doing here. And what Paul is doing here is he's anticipating that somebody is going to have a pretty serious objection to what he's just said in Romans chapter 1. Because he's painted a pretty bleak picture. And as he writes this, he knows there's some people out there that are going, I don't know about that, Paul. I don't know know if I fit in that category. Now, the question that commentators wrestle with is, does Paul have... Who does Paul specifically have in mind as he engages in this diatribe? Remember, I'm using it in this literary sense, not the derogatory sense that we typically think of a diatribe today. But as he engages in this, who does Paul have in mind? Now, most commentators, the vast majority of commentators, believe that even though he doesn't name them at all until verse 9 and doesn't address them directly until verse 17, that he really has the Jews in mind here. So that in verse that in chapter one he's really been focusing on the Gentiles, and in chapter two he's focusing on the Jews. Okay, and there are strong reasons to believe that that is the case that Paul has in his mind here, beginning in chapter two, the Jews, beginning in verse one of chapter two that he has the Jews. There are a minority of commentators who believe that that initially in chapter 2, until he gets to verse 17, that Paul is speaking more generally. That he's speaking of a certain kind of people, but they are to be found both among Jews and Gentiles. (coughs) Okay? (coughs) Well, in wrestling with this question, one of the things we have to ask ourselves is why does Paul not, if he's thinking about the Jews, why does he not directly address them until verse 17? And uh, one uh, very good commentator, very well-respected commentator, suggests that what Paul's doing here, he doesn't use this term, but what he's doing here is he's reeling the Jews in. In other words, he starts without addressing them specifically, and he just kind of starts talking about this kind of person that I will refer to as the moralist. That he's talking about the moralist and the Jew is kind of going, yeah, 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 until he gets to verse 17 and drops the bond and says, I'm talking about you. Okay. And, and that's how many commentators see it. Uh, 
And that may be what Paul is doing here. But if Paul is doing that, then we have to acknowledge that even to the Jew who's reading Romans chapter 2, that in those first verses he sees Gentiles. Did that make sense, what I just said? In other words, if that's the technique that Paul is using, is he's kind of leading the Jews on so that they'll kind of be with him and agreeing with him by the time he points out to them that I'm really talking about you. If that's what Paul is doing, it would only be effective if to the Jewish mind, they know there are Gentiles like this. And so my suggestion is that in reality, the first part of chapter 2 deals more generally with both Jews and Gentiles. It's moralist in both camps. And there's reason to believe that because there was actually a philosophical group of people called the Stoics who were uh, prevalent in Paul's day. And Paul would certainly have encountered them in Corinth and Athens. And they were certainly present in Rome, the place to which Paul is writing this letter. And uh, one of the leading Stoic philosophers was a guy by the name of Seneca, and he was a contemporary of Paul's. And the Stoics were, to use another term, moralists. (laughs) They were very strict about their their moral code, and they were very big on self-examination and and examining yourself and making sure you were living an upright and moral life and that sort of thing. And, of course, even Seneca uh, failed at that point in many points. Uh, and, and hence the problem. But so there is a there there is there there was a, in Paul's day even a philosophical group that we would we would could clearly identify as being Gentile moralists. And so I would suggest to you that the argument here is not just directed at Jews who were moralists, but also to any person who is a moralist. Okay, so. Uh, all of that is kind of by way of purpose. Um, but let's pick it up now in verse 1. And he says, Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that you judge another, you condemn yourself, etc., etc. And uh, the, in my, my translation says, Therefore you... Uh, the you there is kind of understood in the Greek because of the, uh, the, the Greek actually makes it clear. He's talking in the second person uh, plural, which is a uh, uh, or second person, which is a shift from the previous chapter. In the previous chapter, he was talking primarily in the third person. Now he shifts to the second person. OK, this is where the diatribe comes in. OK, so he's actually kind of painting a picture of this debate with this person. So we're dealing with this person whom I identify uh, as uh, the one who judges. Okay? So just, uh, just for the sake of uh, uh, communication here and understanding, uh, we have a person we call an interlocutor. Uh, okay? it's, it's, he's the person who's debating with me. All right? And I'm just going to refer to this interlocutor as the judge. Okay, Mr. and Mrs. Judge. Okay, so Mr. and Mrs. Judge is the person Paul is dealing with here. Okay, and uh, and uh, we know uh, we know several things about him. And what's interesting is to draw a comparison, him or her. What is interesting to do is to draw a comparison between Mr. and Mrs. Judge in chapter two, these first eight verses, and the person we've been looking at in chapter one. Okay. Let's compare them. Look at, look at what it says 
in chapter 2. He says, Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you, uh, for you who judge practice the same things, and, as, and we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. Uh, and then he goes on and he argues, uh, argues about the, uh, them thinking that they're going to escape the judgment of God and, and the foolishness of their thinking. Okay. So, looking at this portrayal of Mr. and Mrs. Judge, or the moralist, the person who thinks they're good, how do they compare and contrast? How does this person compare and contrast with the person that he's described in chapter 1? What are the things that stand out to you that are, for example, the same between the moralist, Mr. and Mrs. Judge, and the person he's described in chapter 1? first thing I thought of was that they are both doing the same thing. Okay, they both practice the same thing. So that's one thing. They're both doing the same things, and we'll address that later. Uh, what else? They are both condemned. Okay. Uh, yeah, they're both condemned. Uh, Let's put it another way. So within those first few verses, first few words, they're without excuse. Remember, that's what he said about the person in chapter uh, chapter one, which is essentially what you're saying, uh, Jim. Yeah. They are without excuse. They do the same things. What else? How about what they know? What does the person in chapter 1 know? They know the truth. But they okay. They know the truth. They know about God. They know the ordinance of God. Okay. They know these things. Okay. What about the person in chapter 2? They don't have judgment. Yeah. <laughs> they, they clearly know. He says in verse 3, he says, uh, uh, excuse me, verse 2, he says, and, and we know, you and I, my my debate partner here. We both know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Okay. So, so both the moralist, Mr. and Mrs. Judge, and, the, and this totally depraved person of chapter 1 are the same in these three things. That they are uh, both without excuse, they both have, because they both have a knowledge of God, and uh, they both do the same kinds of things. But they are different in an important respect. Look in chapter 1, verse 32, and then look at chapter 2, verse 1. How are they different? Okay. Okay. And? Okay. Okay. So the person in chapter 1 approves others who do these things. But the person in chapter 2, verse 1, condemns the person who practices these things. So the difference between, although they're very similar in many ways, the difference is, one just says, well, let's just all do it, it's fine. But the moralist, Mr. and Mrs. Judge, they look at others, even though they practice these things themselves, they look at others and they judge them 
or they condemn them. Okay? Condemning, what I was referring to, he was mentioned, the condemning, the first chapter is by God, and in this chapter is them themselves, but really it's God also. That's why they did the same. Okay. Yes, yes, yeah, good. Okay, well, at this point I go, now wait a minute, Paul. See, here I am doing, you know, diatribe. I'm going, wait a minute, Paul. Uh, are there really people like that? Are there, are there really people, Paul, who are judging? They can see these things are wrong and they see these things and they judge other people and they say, listen, you shouldn't be a slanderer and you shouldn't be a gossip and you shouldn't be a murderer and you shouldn't, you know, and you shouldn't do all these other things that he lists there in that, those verses there at the end of chapter 1. He says they see that and they identify that and they criticize that in people and now you're telling me that they do those very same things themselves? And what's interesting is that when Paul makes that assertion, he doesn't back it up. He doesn't try to prove his case. He just states it. Kind of like it's a given. He's really, at this point, leaving the proof of this to the person's conscience. He's just kind of just laying it out there and saying, listen, Mr. and Mrs. Judge, you know that you practice these things yourself. Now, one commentator suggests that even though he doesn't try to prove his point here, that when he gets to chapter 7, he will prove his point, and we'll see about that. I think he may have some validity there that he actually proves his point in chapter 7, but we'll deal with that when we get to chapter 7, which is a long way down the road. But... <laughs> at least <laughs> um, but it's very difficult for us on the face of things to read what Paul is saying here isn't it and go yeah people are really like that people people who who really see these things are wrong and really speak out against them and really condemn them practice the same things themselves. I mean, the, the intellectual gymnastics you would have to go through to actually do that would be pretty astounding, wouldn't it? But the moralist is not corrupt. The moralist... The, the, okay, the moralist really thinks he's doing right. Okay, okay, okay. But but if you're doing if you're really doing this stuff, how can you see yourself as superior? The question is, is this really a, is this really true about human nature? Do we really do this? Do you do it? We don't. <laughs> we don't do it, but other people do it, and they shouldn't do it, right? And they should be judged for it, right? Yeah, Gary. <laughs> That's a good point, and that was Satan's whole temptation, wasn't it? That's right, of good and evil. That's right. That was the whole point. Yeah, that, that's a that's an that's a that's a very good point, Gary. Um, 
There's an interesting example in the Old Testament. And it just so happens that this example is with a man of God. A man after God's own heart. And that's David. And remember after David's sin with Bathsheba, God puts the prophet Nathan on the spot and says, it's your job to go to the king and call him into account. Okay? Now, if you're Nathan, you know, you're thinking, uh, Lord, I think I'll just give this one to my assistant. <laughs> you know, this is not a job I want to do. I'd like to keep my head, thank you. Okay. So he's trying to figure out, how do I go to the king and point out to the king that he has sinned in this terrible way? And so he concocts this story about this guy who's very rich and has many sheep, but he wants to throw a party for his friends and he doesn't want to take any of his sheep, so he looks at his neighbor over here who has one pet lamb. And he goes over and he takes his neighbor's pet lamb. And I don't remember in Nathan's story, does he kill the guy? I don't remember whether he kills the guy or not. But anyway, he takes his pet lamb and he slaughters the pet lamb and he feeds this, this, his neighbor's pet lamb to, to his party, to his guests. And this is Nathan's story. Of course, it's made up. But he tells David this story, the king, and what does David do? He goes off the handle, doesn't he? He condemns the man. And then Nathan says, you are the man. He did think he was superior to that man. Yeah. So, what we find out is this really is a trait of human nature. And in fact, it's so much a trait of human nature that we have terms that we use to identify this trait. One of them that psychologists use is the term projection. Psychologists, I think Freud coined it, but psychologists use the term projection, where we project onto others the evil that we ourselves do. There's another term that we use to identify this particular trait, uh, uh, and it's called uh, the double standard. We see it all the time, don't we? The double standard. We condemn other people for doing the things that we ourselves do. We see it in our homes. We see it with our little children when they're growing up. We see it in politics. Uh, we see it everywhere, don't we? We see the double standard. That is a manifestation of our tendency to judge others for the very things we ourselves do. And the hypocrite, yeah, yeah. Now, the question is, is it wrong for the person, the moralist here, to judge others? We always wrestle with this question about judging, right? Because Jesus said what? Matthew chapter 7. Do not judge lest you be judged. And, of course, anytime we try to be discerning at all, that verse is thrown in our face, right? Do not judge lest you be judged. 
So the question is, now we're faced with a dilemma here because repeatedly in Scripture, we see examples of God's men and women judging others. And not only do we see examples of that, but we see commandments to judge. So how do we deal with this tension where on one hand Jesus says, do not judge, and on the other hand we have uh, the commandments and the instructions to judge others? How do we deal with this? Well, <laughs> okay. Uh, we, what we have to do is we have to put these verses in their context. And it just so happens that in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged, just a few verses later, he tells us to be on the lookout for false teachers, which implies that we need to what? Judge. Okay, so it's clear that Jesus is not talking about reasonable discernment about the character of another person based on the facts. Okay, that's not what he's prohibiting. But directly in the context, when Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged, comes the passage about the log in your eye and the speck in your brother's eye. So the issue is, uh, the issue is two things. There are two things about the moralist judge that are wrong. And one of them is that he is a hypocrite. That's the kind of person that Paul is dealing with in chapter 2 of Romans. He's the hypocrite. He's a person who is judging others while himself persisting in the sin himself. Now, that's to be distinguished from the person who has failed in this area of sin himself, has repented of it, and then identifies it in the life of another. Okay, that's not a hypocrite. Okay, the hypocrite is somebody, like he describes in Romans 1, who is presently practicing these kinds of sin and in the meantime judges another. So he's a hypocrite. But there is another aspect of it, too, and it's, this is the aspect that Anne's been kind of trying to get me to go in this direction. I'm finally there, Anne, is the idea of self-righteousness. Okay. Uh, you remember the story of the tax collector and the Pharisee who Jesus tells the story, remember, in Luke about the tax collector and the Pharisee who go in to pray together. Okay. And when Luke introduces that story, that parable of Jesus, he introduces it as by saying, Jesus gave a parable in speaking to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Self-righteousness. Okay. So this is so and then he talks about this Pharisee who says who says, I, you know, I I tithe, I keep the Sabbath, I do all this stuff, and I thank you, I'm not like that guy. And he judges that guy, okay? And Jesus refers to that man as a self-righteous man, okay? So, the kind of judging that Scripture condemns is the judging that a hypocritical or self-righteous person engages in. And Jesus says, woe to you if you do that because you're going to end up being judged yourself which is exactly the point that Paul is making. You condemn yourself. Okay. Well, so 
So Paul, dealing with Mr. and Mrs. Judge here, says we've got this person, uh, this person I'm talking with, and the problem with problem is, is you're judging, and in your judging, you're condemning yourself because what you're saying is the justice judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things, and you practice these things, and so the judgment of God rightly falls on you, and you are condemned. And then he says. In verse 3, he says, But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? So here we have a problem. Why does the moralist do what he does? Why does he judge others and doesn't do anything about the log in his own eye? Why does he do that? Well, he does it because he's living under some kind of delusion that he can do this stuff and escape the judgment of God. Now, it's at this point that Paul must almost certainly have the Jews in his mind. Okay. I, I, I have to believe that as Paul is writing this, he's got some of his Jewish friends in mind. Okay. Because this was very characteristic of them that they saw the wickedness of the Gentiles and they acknowledged and there's actually examples in Jewish writings uh, of them doing this where they acknowledge that their sin that they have sinned but God's not going to punish them for their sin because they're just God's people so he's not going to punish them for it so certainly Paul must have the Jews in mind but again as I pointed out not exclusively the Jews because we all know Gentiles like ourselves who do this very thing. We think, well, you know, he's going to get that guy for that, but mine's not quite so bad, so he's not going to get me for it. And then in closing, he, he uh, closing for us today, he says in verse 4, he says, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads to repentance? So, so this person, this Mr. or Mrs. Judge, this self-righteous, hypocritical person who is finding fault in others and ignoring it in themselves has one of two or both faults or problems in their thinking. And the first he's just identified in verse 3, which is they just think, well, you know, God's just not going to... I'm going to escape. Somehow I'm going to escape. Maybe I'm special. Maybe because I'm a Southern Baptist, I'll get out, you know. Or maybe because I'm a, an American, you know, maybe because I was born in a Christian home or maybe because I'm better than my neighbor. You know, my neighbor only mows his lawn once every two weeks and I mow my lawn every week. And so I'm better than my neighbor. And so so I'm going to get by, you know, my neighbor, my neighbor waters on days when he's not supposed to water and I only water on the days I'm supposed to water. So I'm a better person. And so even though, yes, I do some of these things and I do slander and I do gossip and I do all these other things. Somehow I'm going to get off the hook. But the other faulty thinking is he thinks lightly of the riches of God's kindness. His tolerance and his patience. Not knowing that the kindness of God leads to repentance. And as I thought about that, I thought, okay, so what is, what's going on here? He's thinking lightly of the kind. How do you think lightly of the kindness of God? What does it mean to think lightly of the kindness of God? And specifically, when he's talking about the kindness of God here, he's talking about God's 
tolerance and patience in not punishing somebody for their sin. So, so this person has gone on for so long and God has not dumped on them. It's not come down with a hammer on them for all this stuff they've been doing. And so they begin to think lightly of the tolerance and patience of God. They're taking it for granted, but but in but why are they taking it for granted? They're because we don't even think we deserve it. And our concept of sin and God is different, so we think we're pretty good guys. Well, yeah, except the moralist doesn't think that about the other person. He only thinks that about himself. No, but yeah, I mean, that's the kindness of God. Yeah, I think the idea is when they see God waiting patiently, it's because they think not only do we not take it seriously, they think God doesn't take it seriously. Have you ever done that? You know, there's been some sin you've had in your life. Maybe you've even struggled a little bit and, and, and you, you know, and God hadn't seemed to really come down on you yet on it or really nailed you like He could have on it. And, you know, the temptation is to think, well, maybe it's not that big of a deal. Now, here's where thinking lightly of the kindness of God comes in. Because if, if you have a little habit and I tolerate it, and I'm patient with it, and I don't rag you about it. It could be because it's really not that big of a deal to me, right? Your little strange quirk, quirk of, you know, twisting your mouth, whatever it is you do that I don't like, you know, or how you brush your teeth or something. Some, 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 but, but, but it really is not that big of a deal to me, and so it's really not a big deal for me to be patient with you, is it? And if sin is not really a big issue to God, then His patience isn't really a big issue either. Do you think lightly of the kindnesses, the riches of His kindness, His patience, and His tolerance? Or do you not realize, or do you not know, that the kindness of God leads to repentance? That God's purpose and His kindness and His patience and His tolerance is not because He's indifferent to you, but because He wants you to repent. You see, when we understand that God is really outraged and offended and scandalized by our sin, when we realize that, then we no longer think lightly of His tolerance and His patience. Right? then we start realizing that God's tolerance and His patience is not because to Him it's no big deal, so it's easy to be patient. But we begin to realize that God's tolerance and patience is actually a wall. It is a dam that is holding back His wrath because He wants us to repent. He's giving us time to repent. Oh, the incredible mercy of God. Why would He give us time to repent? Why did He give us time at all? I thought in my own life, as I've been thinking about this verse the last couple of days, how many times in my own life it's just taken me time to get there? It's just taken time. And God in His mercy and His kindness to me has been willing to wait till I got from point A to point B. And then I don't think lightly of the kindness of God. Then I begin to realize 
what a grace it is, how good God is, how merciful God is, how wonderful and how great is His patience and His tolerance with me that at the first stroke, He doesn't just come down with a sledgehammer on my head and go, boom, you did it, I got you. But rather, His patience holds back His, in my life and in your life if you're a believer, the discipline of God holds it back giving us time to repent in hopes that when we see that I've sinned and I turn around and I'm not struck with lightning on the spot, I go, oh man, I need to repent. The kindness of God is intended when I see it. The tolerance and patience of God when I see it is intended to, to have this effect in me that it makes me want to repent. But the moralist, the moralist regards lightly the riches of his kindness, his tolerance, and his patience. Because they do not understand that God's tolerance and his patience is not simply a manifestation of his indifference, but is rather a dam holding back his judgment and his wrath and his punishment on my sin because he loves me tenderly with mercy and He wants me to repent so that I don't experience that wrath. Well, how does the moralist respond? We'll pick that up in verse 5. Exactly. 